Father in heaven, we do come before you today in a spirit of worship as a community of faith, as brothers and sisters, um, declaring to one another in song and word and in truth today, God, that we want to lean on you more than anything else. We confess our tendencies, our impulses to trust in our own abilities, our own intellect, our own ambitions. So God, we want to surrender those things to you this morning. God, we want to set our own desires aside and, and truly empty ourselves so that we can receive you, your spirit, and your truth. To truly lean on your everlasting arms, God, and to recognize that they are indeed, as we have sung, they are everlasting. They are here today. They are secure tomorrow. And for us to trust in that, to know that, to believe it, to have it shape us, mold us, so that we can live courageously, live confidently, live boldly, not by our own merits, but by your incredible grace, your incredible mercy. What an incredible thing for us to behold today, God. We want to celebrate that grace and that mercy. We want to be shaped and molded by it. So as we turn now, God, to your holy word, your amazing truth, may our hearts be open, may our minds be ready to receive, God, to be challenged, to be encouraged, that your spirit would guide us, that you would inhabit this place, as we seek to glorify you. We love you, Father. We pray all these things in the strong and precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Good morning, church family. How is everyone today? It is good to be back with you all today. Uh, missed being with you last week. I mean, don't get me wrong. Spring break is a lot of fun. Uh, it was very restful. Thank you for allowing my family the opportunity to uh, get away and enjoy some time and, and some much-needed rest. But I do always miss being with you all on a Sunday morning, so it's good to be back with you all. I also want to uh, just acknowledge uh, how great I believe the, the Lenten devotionals have been going so far this season of Lent. Hopefully you all have enjoyed the devotionals uh, that we do every year during the season of Lent. Uh, every time I read one of those devotionals, I'm reminded of just what a gifted and talented congregation uh, we are a part of and how many incredible people, not just bless us with their writing abilities, but their spiritual insights, their relationship with the Lord. Um, I've really enjoyed uh, all that you all have offered and getting a chance to read those throughout this Lenten season. Hopefully you all have as well. And uh, I've, I have neglected to do this up to this point just because I know she doesn't really like attention, but I don't see her here today, which is maybe why I can get away with it. But I also want to acknowledge Sharon Greitz. Uh, Sharon is, is the architect of that whole Lenten devotional. I mean, she helps come up with the plan, the passages, the themes. She coordinates with the writers. She writes herself. She's an editor. I mean, she does it all. And we are truly blessed by her uh, talents and her skill set to bring that devotional to us year after year. So when you see her next time, tell her thank you, um, as we are deeply appreciative of her gifting and her talents as well through that Lenten devotional. Now, the reason, the other reason I bring that up, though, is because my hope is that we, we acknowledge that the devotional is used as a tool for the Lenten season to take us on our personal kind of re reflection of our own relationship with Christ and to use that as we approach the Easter Sunday response of the cross and the resurrection. And that you can use this Lenten season to really reflect upon what is God teaching you? What is he showing you? How can you allow his light to shine in your life, which correlates with this whole theme of being courageous and living as courageous people. And where that will take us is we'll get to Easter Sunday and, and we'll have a chance to celebrate all that he has done. And then the following Sunday, Commitment Sunday, is when we reveal the spiritual questionnaire that allows us to really kind of articulate 
where are we personally in our walk with the Lord? And also, where do we see him leading us in, in terms of our own lives? And so uh, utilize that devotional as a guide and something that can be a catalyst for that sort of reflection, that sort of evaluation, so that Easter Sunday doesn't feel like just one more special Sunday but that it's part of a whole season of us reflecting upon our own relationship with Christ. And so uh, hopefully you are enjoying that devotional guide as much as I am. Um, now, all that being said, I, I do hope that it helps complement the discussion that we've had so far about living courageously. That's been our theme for the year. And we established that at the beginning of the year in January. We talked about Joshua 1.9 and, and kind of that importance of living courageously and how do we pursue that and how do we look to that. And then the first sermon series that we used to tackle that theme was really focused on prayer and, and understanding that the foundation to a courageous life is really centered on understanding what it means to pray and how to pray courageously evenly and even so. And, and that was something that I think we all were encouraged by. I know it was a blessing to me to study that and to share that week in and week out. Uh, but that was kind of step one. And, and now we're into the next phase of this discussion. And, and the focus now as we go back to Romans is understanding that God has a plan and that understanding his plan is going to also enhance our ability to live courageously. And, and then from there, that's going to take us through the Easter season, really through Commitment Sunday as we continue to look through Romans. On the other side of Commitment Sunday is when we're going to turn to another subject matter, another topic that also speaks to this idea of living courageously, which is the idea of understanding truth, right? And recognizing that uh, we need to understand what truth is in this culture, in our lives, God's truth in particular, and how do we demonstrate that in a very courageous and God-honoring way. We see a lot of people living courageously based on lies, based on something that is false. So truth and discernment of truth is incredibly important in today's context. And so I'm really looking forward to that series that's coming on the other side of Easter. Um, and so I hope you'll be a part of that discussion as well. But like I said, in the interim, uh, where we're focused right now is the idea of God's courageous plan and how his plan, understanding his plan, allows us to live courageously. Here's the idea, right? It's, it's like a child. Um, w w over the last couple of weeks, we've had crazy storms pass through here, had, had a crazy hailstorm pass through not too long ago. The sirens ran off at our house, and we have a plan when that takes place. We just got back from a road trip, right? And, and my kids on that road trip or in any, any sort of situation like that, they're not sitting around worried about when are we gonna get gas, uh, where are we staying for the night. They're not worried about the finances. They're not worried about any of those things. Why? Because they know mom and dad have a plan, right? They, they know it whether it's a disaster and the sirens are going off and we need to take shelter in the bathroom. They know if it's a great experience and a great opportunity to go travel, like, like they can live with more freedom. They can live with more excitement, more enthusiasm because they know there's a plan. That's the concept that we're trying to tap into, right? Recognizing that our own lives can demonstrate that same spirit of freedom, that same spirit of boldness and courage because we understand God has a plan. Now, we may not always understand the plan itself, but we can trust the one who has shaped it. And that's been the whole point of our conversation in this series. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, we started back into Romans chapter 9. And as we got there, we talked about Paul's uh, strong obligation and burden uh, for his own people, right? That he had a, a significant and authentic concern 
for the, for the fellow Jews, for the people of Israel. He talked about all of, of the things that they could claim as their heritage, the promises, the patriarchs, and all these different things that were now uh, being offered to the Gentiles. And, and how that it, it began to reveal this incredible plan that God was not just God of the Jews, but he was God of all, and that is something to be, cel- to be celebrated. And so we saw that at the beginning, and then last week, Jason continued us uh, through uh, the book of Romans. Special word of thanks to Jason. Put your hands together for uh, his service last week. Just one more example of people using their giftings and their skill set as a part of the body of Christ, which is what the church is supposed to be. And, and he took us through the next section in Romans, verses 6 through 13, if I'm not mistaken, where you really get to answer this question, is, did God's word fail? Right? Because if, if Israel didn't respond to the gospel, if they missed the Messiah, did God's word fail? That was the fundamental question. And, and there are a few things that I want to remind you of from that passage as we begin to look at the text that we're going to consider today. Is that when, when Paul considers that question, did God's, words, did God's word fail as a result of Israel's rejection of the gospel and of Christ, uh, Paul brings forward two primary examples. Right? He talks about Abraham's descendants, and then he talks about Jacob and Esau. And so when he brings this idea of Abraham's descendants, part of what he is saying is, is he's referring to indirectly Ishmael, right? And, and ultimately what he's saying is that not everyone that comes from the line of Abraham, the blood of Abraham, gets to declare to be a part of this promise, right? So the Jews that sit there and say, but hey, I'm, I'm Abraham's descendant, right? D- don't I get to receive this no matter what just because he's of my bloodline or I'm of his bloodline? You don't get to make that argument because Ishmael didn't get to make that argument, right? It's not enough just to be a descendant of Abraham or to think of uh, being a descendant of Abraham in that traditional way. Now, the pushback on that example that Paul anticipates is obviously, well, yeah, but Ishmael was a descendant of Hagar, right? She was the slave woman, the maidservant, and so that doesn't really correlate. And so to, to kind of push against that, Paul brings forward another example of Jacob and Esau. And he says, before these two were even born, right, before there was even any, any kind of evidence of what their deeds were, good or bad, God declared that the elder will serve the younger, right, that Esau is going to be rejected, so to speak, and that God's promise in his line is going to go through Jacob, right? Now, the reason Paul's making that argument is because now you have the same parents, both descendant from uh, Abraham and Sarah, right? Both of them parents in, in a lineage of the promises, right? That is different than what Ishmael and Hagar had to experience. But now you can still see that God chose to go with one versus the other. He went with Jacob instead of Esau. And it was not based upon merit. And so here's the argument again. Jews, it's not enough for you to say, but I followed the law, right? Look at my deeds. Look at all that I have earned. This is not how you get to declare God's favor, right? This doesn't mean that God's word failed, right? God had a plan. He chose Jacob before he even knew what Jacob and Esau were gonna do, right? Before we even observed any of that. And it was all built upon God's mercy, right? It's not based on human desire or effort. It's not based on your own accomplishments, your own works according to the law. It's not based upon your race, your ethnicity, your bloodline. It's only based upon God's mercy. Now, that's the fundamental point that he's trying to make to the Jews. Okay, now, what we can anticipate by hearing that line of thinking is a certain question, 
right? A certain question to push back, then not just did God's word fail, okay, apparently his word is being sustained, but is God just? Because if Esau was rejected arbitrarily, not based on his deeds, not based on his actions, is that fair? Is that just? Is it okay for God to do that? That's the question. And that's the question that Paul anticipates, and that's the question that really governs the next section of the passage. And again, what we're going to see is Paul developing this theme that God is a God of mercy. All right, so let's take a look. Romans chapter 9, we're going to be picking up in verses 14 through 23. Okay, now there's a lot that we're going to have to digest and unpack today. So uh, tune in, follow along, let's, let's really dive into it this morning. Verse 14, it says, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? There's the question, right? If, if you're gonna say Esau was rejected arbitrarily, then, then doesn't that make God unjust? And look at uh, Paul's response, not at all, not at all. God is anything but unjust. And that's a key question for us uh, to come back to throughout this discussion. Now, Paul gives us evidence for his assertion um, that God is not unjust. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Okay, we're gonna stop there. Like I said, there's a lot to dive into with this particular passage. Now, here's, here's the key word for us to digest and understand the verses that we've just read. Context. Context, context, context. I'm gonna go back to that over and over and over again. And I mean that in a couple different ways. Part of that is gonna be understanding the context of where we are in this letter to the Romans. Meaning, we cannot forget everything that Paul has already argued for in the first eight chapters. We're especially gonna go back to chapters one through three here in a little bit, okay? We also can't forget of where he's going, right? Like, like, we're, we're in a section that really could be lumped together, chapters 9, 10, and 11. So we're only looking at a part of the puzzle, okay? What he begins to unpack further in chapter 10 and 11 is a key part of this whole discussion. So you can't lose sight of that either, all right? So it's not just context within the letter of the Romans, but it's also going to be context within the entirety of Scripture. We're going to be going back to several different passages in the Old Testament today as well. Now, when we think about context, here are a couple of points that I want you to keep in mind as we begin this discussion. What you need to not lose sight of is that in this particular part of Romans chapter nine, Paul is talking about election. He is not talking about judgment. Judgment was discussed in chapters one, two, and three. 
Okay, now he's talking about election. Now, those two things are very similar. As one scholar I read argued, it's kind of like two different sides of the same coin. Right, so there's a correlation, there's a lot of similarities, but they are different. Here's the way that I try to understand the difference. Judgment is essentially God's response to humanity where we are accountable for our deeds, accountable for our actions, right? We're gonna revisit that a little bit, what Paul's already talked about those things. Election is, is, an, is a discussion about what, what God has done, who God has chosen as a people to reveal his plan of salvation. You hear the difference, right? There is a, a significant difference, which is another point to the context that I want you to keep in mind as we discuss this this morning. This is about Israel's role as God's chosen people to reveal his plan of salvation to the earth. That is what Paul is discussing, okay? Uh, James Dunn is one scholar that I was researching and utilizing for preparation of this message, and he, he emphasized this over and over again. Don't take this passage further than what Paul intended, which a lot of people do. It is so easy to look at Romans 9 and just hijack a verse, right? Hijack a verse like, well, God's gonna have mercy on who he wants to have mercy, and then use that as, as some sort of implication that we have no responsibility, no, no blame whatsoever, that God has predetermined every single step of our lives, and it's all according to his plan, and we have no control. Right, that is hijacking this context. It is not about you specifically in your life and all the decisions that you make. This is about God's plan of salvation being chosen and revealed through the people of Israel. Why did he choose them? And how is he using their current rejection of the Messiah for his glory? That's what Paul is talking about. So we have to understand context, okay? And so there, there's a lot that we'll be able to uh, point to in order to unpack this, okay? Here's the first thing. The question is, is God unjust, right? If he arbitrarily uh, rejects Esau, then, then can we trust his judgment? Is he unjust? And Paul's answer is absolutely, he is not unjust, right? It's a very clear answer. Now, I think we can all recognize and empathize with this question, right? That this is a familiar question, that at some point or another, each of us have probably come to a certain season in our life where we have questioned the justice of God. Have we not? I think it is a human question. I think it's a natural question. What I hope today's passage teaches us is how to answer it, right? That essentially what that question is asking is, who is God? Who is this character describing to me? Help me understand who he is. Is he, is he fair? Is he just? Is the unjust, like that's really what the people are asking. And that's what we ask. What is God like? And part of what Paul is about to take them on this journey in is a reminder that God is a God of mercy, right? And that's where it begins. For, for Paul to answer this and justify his answer, right, he goes to Moses and he says, for God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now here's one of our first lessons on context today. What Paul just quoted was Exodus 33, 19. Okay, and, and there is probably little question that for his Jewish audience in particular, who was reading this letter, they would all understand exactly that moment where God said that to Moses in the story that surrounds it. So rather than Moses needing to go back into every detail, he's, he's emphasizing a particular moment in a very well-known story to his Jewish audience, okay? Here's the, the story that I'm gonna use as, as a reminder for you all this morning. In Exodus 32, 
God has brought his people up out of Egypt. He has saved them in a miraculous way. He has led them out of the hands of oppression from Pharaoh. And they get to the desert and they're, they're getting ready to, to move into the promised land. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. And what do the people choose to do? They worship the golden calf. They make an idol out of gold. They sacrifice to it. They engage in all sorts of sinful rebellion. So much so that in Exodus 32, right, God turns to Moses and says, here's what the people are doing down there. I'm going to destroy them and start over with you. That's what God says, right? And Moses pleads, don't. Why would you do that? Right, don't forget the promises you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Think about what all the other nations are gonna say that you just brought these people out of Egypt just to destroy them in the desert. Don't do that. And then it tells us God relented. He was patient. He was merciful. Correct? He was a God of mercy. In Exodus 33, right? So now, in the midst of all of this that has taken place. Now, let's not make a mistake here of understanding that in Exodus 32, there was absolutely accountability for that sinful behavior. God didn't just turn a blind eye. He didn't just say, well, who cares, right? There, there were significant consequences for the people of Israel for their sinful behavior, absolutely. But he kept them as his chosen people. Does that make sense? The election of the nation of Israel to be his chosen people, to reveal his plan of salvation, remained, right? And so now when Moses goes back to the mountain and they're in this same discussion, that's when Moses says, can I see you? Can your presence pass before me? And he says, yes, I'm gonna pass before you. Can't look upon my face for I am a God of mercy, right? That's where he declares, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And it's one of the most powerful examples in the Old Testament where we get a chance to see that our God is a God of mercy. In a moment where he could have wiped his people off the face of the earth and been justified in doing so, he relented and showed mercy. That's the sort of God that we serve. Now I wanna stop there for a moment and, and apply that to our lives. Because a lot of times when we find ourselves questioning the justice of God, right, we, we have this visceral response, this human innate response that really wants God to prove his justice. We really want God to prove his, his worthiness and his justice to ourselves, right? And we want to be able to question him. And it's amazing to me how we, just like Israel, can conveniently forget our own sinfulness. Can we not? Like, how many of us have our own golden calf seasons and moments that we can just conveniently put aside and say, all right, God, prove yourself to me. Right? Part of what we have to recognize is we're broken people. We don't really want justice. Because if we got justice for all that is intended, then the consequences of our sinfulness, according to Scripture, is deserving of death. So when we ask, is God just, let's not ask that question blind to our own sinfulness and our own golden calf impulses that consistently and instinctively rebel against the Lord. 
It's what Israel had done. That's what Israel was doing. Right? They had arrived at this place where they felt entitled just because they had received the law. They were descendants of Abraham. And their history is filled with disobedience and oppression. And yet God was consistently merciful. Now, Paul follows this up with another interesting example. He brings Pharaoh into the discussion. Right? And he says, for I have said to Pharaoh, let me turn back there. He says, for I, the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name therefore be proclaimed in all the earth. Now he's quoting Exodus 9.16. Okay? Now, context, again, is incredibly important here. All right, when you go back to Exodus 9, you're in the middle of the plagues. Okay, so this, this is actually a moment where God is telling Moses, here's what I want you to go say to Pharaoh. Here are the plagues that have happened, right? You've had the plagues of blood, of frogs, of gnats, of flies, of livestock, right? If I'm not mistaken, right? And maybe even boils. I think all those plagues have already taken place. And this is a discussion that is right in the middle of God preparing for the plague of hail. And then on the other side of it is going to be the plague of locusts, of darkness, and then the firstborn. So that's where we are in this discussion. A lot has already been unleashed upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, okay? And so what really brings verse 16 to life that Paul has just quoted is actually verse 15, if you ask me. Verse 15 in Exodus chapter nine, uh, God is telling Moses, go say this to Pharaoh, for by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. That's verse 15. But verse 16 says, but I've raised you up for this very purpose, right? So that uh, my name might be proclaimed among the earth. Now, here's what's interesting. The phrase, I've raised you up, right? This is, again, when I first read that passage and I read that terminology, for me, it sounded like from the very beginning, right, before Pharaoh was even born, God raised him up and kind of had this whole plan and purpose preordained for Pharaoh's life to play this particular role. Now, there may be an element of truth to that, but the phrase there, I raised you up, actually can be translated, and what I would argue is a better translation is, I spared you up to this point for this purpose, which essentially means, especially when you read it in the context of verse 15, don't you see, Pharaoh, have you not learned from all these other plagues already that I have the power to wipe you off the face of the earth? But I've spared you. I've been merciful towards you. I've been patient with you. And my sparing of you has been provided so that my glory and my name can be proclaimed among the earth. God had a plan. And even in the sparing of Pharaoh, even in that, that sort of mercy, even in that sort of patience, God's glory was being revealed. And so now what's interesting is that Paul has made this correlation between Pharaoh and Israel. Right In the same way that Pharaoh had rejected God's power, had rejected God's plan, but now in his rejection, God's power is being further accentuated and his name was actually being proclaimed among the earth, the same thing was happening with Israel, right? In their rejection of Jesus, in their rejection of the gospel, though God could have wiped them off the face of the earth many, many times, going all the way back to the golden calf, 
He has relented, he has been patient, he has spared them, he has been merciful up to this point. And now what it was doing was allowing his name to be proclaimed among all the earth, specifically by bringing in the Gentiles. That was the correlation, that was the similarity. That God's patience, even in their rejection, was resulting in his glory and other people being brought in. It was because of his mercy. Therefore, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will harden whom I want to harden. Now, that's, that's how Paul takes us through those first few examples. Now, that idea of a hardening of a heart kind of leads us to this next question that, to me, is also pretty interesting and is going to get us into this discussion of judgment versus election, which is pretty important, okay? Because now you talk about this hardening of heart, and, and essentially Paul has used Pharaoh in such a way that it kind of makes you feel like Pharaoh was a puppet. And if Pharaoh's a puppet, then why are we blaming Pharaoh? Wouldn't we blame the puppeteer? Right? Isn't that the more natural kind of response? And so next, the follow-up question. Then why blame us? Right? If he's going to harden who he wants to harden and have compassion on who he wants to convey, why blame us? Who can resist his will? Right? That's the next question. And this is a really interesting uh, presentation that Paul begins to unpack because the notion of blame, right, that idea of blame, again, is really more about judgment as opposed to election, right? Blame means, are you, are you gonna hold me accountable? Is it fair for God to blame us, us being the Jews, for our rejection? Is that really the way that his judgment should be extracted? And, and so the, the question has now shifted the dialogue out of this discussion of election in terms of why he has chosen the Jews and been patient with the Jews and merciful to the Jews by keeping them as his people to now a question of God's judgment. Is it fair for him to blame us? Right Now this is where we have to remember everything that Paul has already talked about in Romans. And here's what Paul does to kind of bring this back to memory. He says, who are you? <laughs> who are you, a mere human being, to ask that of God? Right? Does the one that is formed have the right to question the one who formed it? Why did you make me this way? Listen to the language he's using. He's talking about creation again. That should take us all the way back to Romans 1. Right? And, and what we'll see is that in the conversation about judgment, we have a lot of the same characteristics, a lot of the same evidence and plays we do as election. God's mercy, his patience, his compassion. You go back to Romans 1. What's the main problem? What's the main problem that humanity deals with, right? The main problem is a refusal to acknowledge God as God. It tells us that God has made himself known to what he has made, right? That his divine qualities, qualities, his eternal purpose, his eternal nature was put on display so that men are without excuse. That's what it says in Romans 1. But what does mankind do, right? They exchange the truth of God for a lie and they worship and serve created things rather than the creator. That is the fundamental problem with the human heart, right? That we refuse to see him as creator, and we elevate ourselves or we elevate other created things to the seat that only he was supposed to inhold. Right, that that's, that's the problem of sinfulness. And, and so that rejection leads to God giving them over to a depraved mind, right? This is where hardening comes in, right? In the rejection of the creator, God gives them over to their sinful impulses, and that's when you get this list of vices in Romans 1, 
right, out of all the different things that you can see described as godlessness and wickedness. That's, that's the hardening of heart, that essentially what God says is, if you're not going to see me as a creator, the inevitable consequence of that path is a heart that gets hardened and goes down the path towards sinfulness. To the extent that there at the end of chapter one, he describes it as though they know those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but actually approve of those who practice them. That's a hardened heart. We can't forget that. That has to inform our understanding of Romans nine. Right, that essentially it starts with the rejection of seeing God as God. And the hardening comes from our own rebellion, our own turning of our backs on God, that that's what leads us to that hardening. And so he establishes that in chapter one. He gets to chapter two, and he says, so now you Jews who think all of this that I've been talking about so far in chapter one is just about Gentiles, don't you know that just because you've been given the law, you are guilty of the same things? You yourself are a lawbreaker? And whether you've been given the law or whether you were born outside of the law, you're all gonna be held accountable to the law that's been written on your hearts. And there in the middle of chapter two, don't you see that God's patience, his kindness, is there to lead you to repentance, but you continue to disobey, you continue to reject, which leads to chapter three, him saying, what? There's no one righteous, not one. So we can't forget what Paul has established in terms of God's judgment. God's judgment against the hearts of humanity ultimately arrives at the conclusion, no one is righteous, not one. And the hardening of a heart comes from our own rebellion to refuse to see God as creator. And so when we position ourselves, and this is where we need to apply it, when we position ourselves to question God's character, to question his justice, we are elevating ourselves and demanding that the creator answer to the created. That's the spirit that is the heart of sinfulness, the heart of rebellion, and it is rampant in our culture today. God constantly has to prove himself to us to prove that we are sinful, to prove that we are wrong, right? All these different things. That's the mindset of our culture. That's the mindset of the world. We're so uncomfortable with the idea that there is a creator who knows more and is in control. We don't want to surrender that control. And that's what Paul is reestablishing. Who are you? A mere human being. See, part of what we have to learn in this passage is this very humble reminder that we are sinful and we are human. And so for us to question God's character, for us to question his justice, his righteousness, is a very dangerous path. Right? It, it disorients the way in which things were intended to be. So Paul is reestablishing that. And that's kind of what leads him to that, that final statement there in verse 22 and 23 where he says, listen, some of these things that were, were spared, that looked like they were prepared for destruction, where God withheld his wrath or stored up his wrath, be it Pharaoh, be it Israel, be it Jew, whatever it is, right? Those things still were used to demonstrate God's mercy and his patience and his love that then leads to his glory, right? And so, so we need to recognize the way in which he works, that even though it doesn't always make sense, even though we may want to question its fairness, God has a plan. And at the heart of that plan is his mercy. Now, the, the, the primary image that, that comes 
uh, to the forefront here that Paul utilizes that I think ties this all together so beautifully and perfectly, and we'll kind of use this to start to wrap up, is the image of the potter and the clay. All right, look look at again how he says that uh, there in chapter nine. He says, uh, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use. Right, again, um, I think this is a passage that's hard for us in our culture um, because we, we believe in like equal rights across all levels, right? I mean, everybody's entitled to the same thing. Like that's the mantra and there's a lot of good things to that. But when you really think about it through the course of the, the meta-narrative, like not everybody gets to be Pharaoh, Right, like there's just differences in the way that this story has been crafted. And so Paul is, is using this idea that, look, there's a potter who's shaping things out of clay. Now, that's a really well-known image to Jews. And again, context, context, context. If you're a Jew and you're reading this, you know what he's referencing. This is an image that's found in Isaiah, most famously and probably most well-known in Jeremiah. Prophet Jeremiah in verse, uh, chapter 18, verses one through 10. And it's such a, a beautiful passage that we're gonna read it to help understand the context that this imagery of potter and clay was, was often seen to be in the Jewish audience, okay? Um, so going back to Jeremiah chapter 18, verses one through 10. Here's how this is described. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house and I saw him working at the wheel, but the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. And then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you Israel as the potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time, I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed. And if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. That's a beautiful passage. And here's the reason I think it's so beautiful. Think about what this says to the nation of Israel. Again, this is about God um, and his elective purposes for the nation of Israel. They are like the potter and the clay. The nation of Israel is the clay in the potter's hand. And in the book of Jeremiah, this well-known passage, what we see God revealing to the prophet is that in the same way uh, Jeremiah comes in and sees the clay is marred in the hands of the potter, so it is with the nation of Israel. That at this point in time, right, with their rejection of Jesus, their rejection of the gospel, they were like a marred piece of clay. But they were still in the hands of the potter. And so be it like Nineveh, be it like their own history, whatever, if they would relent, if they would repent, if they would confess and come back, then God would repurpose them, restore them, remake them. But if they continue in their rebellion, 
then he can reconsider the good that they had for them, the good that he had intended for them. And we see that time and time again throughout the story of Scripture where God has declared a warning, he has declared truth, he has declared a way, he's declared a law, whatever. And for those that relented, and were, or excuse me, those that repented, he would relent. Those that were disobedient, they continued towards a path of destruction. Like we see it over and over and over again. And so once again, this image comes to mind. And what Paul is trying to say, don't you understand that even in your rejection, even now, God can still remake and restore you. And that is anticipating chapter 11, which is on its way. That God will not neglect them. He will not become unfaithful to them. That there is a remnant that is still in place. And so to me, it's this beautiful image that I think gives us a way for us to kind of apply it to our own lives and, and kind of conclude us this morning. Right? Here's, here's what I would say. is I don't think there's anything wrong with questioning God. I think it's natural to wonder if he's fair, to wonder if he's just. I think we will inevitably go through seasons where we, ask, where we will ask ourselves that question, where we will look at the events of the world around us and wrestle with, where do we see God in this plan? It's natural. What I want to challenge us with is the spirit with which we ask that question. Do we come to God with those questions, with the spirit that says that the potter needs to explain himself to us? Or do we come to him with the spirit that says, I am clay in your hands. And though I don't understand it, I trust your plan. And I know that even what is marred and looks broken can be restored and remade and renewed. Because you are the potter and I am the clay. That's the spirit with which we need to come before the Father. And what we discover is the same thing Israel discovered consistently throughout its story. The same thing Paul had discovered and the early church discovered and is still there for us to discover today. That when we come with that spirit, we can realize that our sin runs deep. Israel's sin ran so deep in its disobedience and time and time again, God showed them his mercy was more. And that's what we want to celebrate this morning, church, that his mercy is truly stronger than darkness. It is new every morning. And though our sins may be bountiful, though they may add up, though they may be many, his mercy is always more. And so when we assume that posture and that spirit, mindful of our own brokenness, approaching God with our own humility, what we get to see is the mercy of God that results in the praise of God. And that's what I want us to do this morning is to celebrate our Father, to celebrate our God for his abounding mercy and to give him the praise that he so richly deserves because we know and can declare to one another that his mercy is always more. Let's pray together. And as you um, assume that posture of prayer for a moment, I just, I want to encourage you to lay your soul bare before the Lord. Just open your heart and your mind and 
create an awareness of our own humanity, create an awareness of our own brokenness and our own need for saving. And if there's something that you have experienced, something that you are currently facing, where you need to seek the mercy of the Lord, I would ask that you would do that today. Whether it's choices that you've recently made, maybe it's just a certain neglect or taking certain things for granted. I just want you to ask for his mercy. And then in addition to that, I want you to just, in your heart, give him praise for his plan. Give him praise for his character and who he is, to recognize that from the very beginning, our God is a God of mercy. Our God is a God who is patient. Our God is a God who relents even in the face of sinful disobedience. And as we become aware of that, let us give praise to God today. Let us give praise for who he is. Let us celebrate the depths of his mercy.